Now, let me, let me give you a little background of where we're going to be. We're going to be in Isaiah 11 today, and we'll be kind of in Isaiah for two or three weeks. We're going to jump into Hebrews for a couple of weeks, and then we'll end up uh, uh, in the book of Revelation, actually, talking all about this issue of a, uh, the sovereignty of God. Let me, everybody kind of believes, probably in this room, um, that the Bible clearly teaches the sovereignty of God, which is kind of going to be our theme. Um, and most of us don't have any trouble understanding or accepting the sovereignty of God when life is going well. <laughs> it's when it's not going so well, that what often leaves us kind of perplexed and sometimes annoyed or even kind of angry are the turmoils and the tragedies of daily life. And during those times, we want to ask, okay, wait a minute, is God really in control? If so, then why do nations wage genocide, for instance? If so, why do people flaunt wickedness with impunity? If so, then why do families in our culture even, in our neighborhood, continue to disintegrate? But we want to take care to note that a lot of portions of the Bible that proclaim God's sovereignty were recorded during periods of great turmoil and tragedy. Uh, that's kind of comforting to me. Do you know that? That a lot of, a lot of the passages that we read about, about um uh, the sovereignty of God came during the worst times in history. Uh, when I read the book of Revelation in, the, in its predictive um, uh, literature, I also notice that as John is writing that, he's writing it from exile. As, as John is writing that, he's writing it during, you could argue, the worst time in human history. As Isaiah writes, he writes during a terrible time in biblical history. As he writes... Uh, it's interesting. Uh, he carries out his ministry during a time when God's people were confronted by the seeming invincible Assyrian Empire. God's sovereignty, nice in theory perhaps, but that idea can be hard to embrace when Assyrian troops are overrunning your, your territory and they, as they were in Isaiah's day. Lord, The Lord's plans for his kingdom are what we're going to be talking about. That kingdom is to be characterized by true and lasting peace, despite what goes on kind of around us. Now, look at your outline. I wrote a couple of questions for us to think about. By the way, I wrote this lesson like two weeks ago, so I don't remember hardly any of it. <laughs> I just used a double negative, didn't I? Who is Lord anyway? We're in election season. Did you notice that? Have you known that? In this season, uh, maybe we should look again. If you're like me, and if I had hair, I'd want to pull it out certain days, you know. If you're like me, uh, maybe I should look again at who is in charge, really. Uh, the climate in Isaiah's day uh, looked worse than in our day, believe it or not. In, in chapter 7 of Isaiah's writing, he uh, goes to King Ahaz, who's not a very good king, and he advises Ahaz to pay attention to, to God. And his warnings went unheeded. The result was tragic. Isn't it the case that both in Isaiah's day and in my day, we need to look at life from his perspective, from God's perspective, from God's point of view? So we're going to do that. Uh, in this little series. Now go to chapter 11, if you will. Okay? And I want us to start. John, can I get you to read verse 1 through 5 
uh, down, down through there to kind of give us a backdrop for what Isaiah is going to teach us today. Now, Isaiah is going to begin here with this picture and over the next few chapters that we're going to deal with. He's going to begin here with a picture of life emerging from some really unpromising conditions. Okay? Did it rain a lot while I was gone? My grass looks really green. Did it rain some? Uh, what happened while I was gone? It was like, huh? Did you go water for me? Thank you, Ellie. It, it helps to have a friend, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it just the grass looks good. Now, the, my flowers are miserable looking. But, but then I come back in, it's like 75 degrees. I'm thinking, wait a minute. It was 20 degrees different from this when I left. But, you know, if, if you're like me, toward the end of summertime, the, the conditions in, in uh, Oklahoma are kind of unpromising for, uh, for plant life. You know, and you think, okay, is this ever going to break? And it's wonderful to see that. Well, Isaiah's going to write during a day that where life just had some kind of unpromising conditions. Now, I've always, every time I've read through this passage and, and other passages that describe this in the prophet Isaiah, I kind of have always wondered why is he dealing with here. Uh, and, and you and I need to recognize it with the branch of Jesse. Why Jesse? Why Jesse? And by the way, look at your Bibles, if you will. Does the word branch occur in verse 1 here? Is it capitalized? It doesn't, branch is not there. Kathy, is, is it there? It's not capitalized? Is it capitalized in some of yours? Why would it be capitalized? That is always, any time a word kind of out of context is capitalized, it's not because it's somebody's name necessarily. It's a reference to something divine. Uh, Walt, I have to admit, when I was dealing with this this week, I thought of our friend Longmire, who remember he had a buddy named Branch. Remember that? Um, but this is not talking about some guy named Branch. This is talking about the Branch, capital B, the word in Hebrew is the word netzer. Netzer. Now, there's a funny connection that the gospel writer Matthew is going to make. Go with me over to Matthew 2.23. All right? Uh, for those of you like my wife, who uh, have, have, were as kids, and John in some ways still continue to be, um, John and Katie graciously came to the funeral a couple weeks ago, and uh, they were. I think you guys were loving being back in a Nazarene church. I, you felt right at home, didn't you? 
for, for those of you who've got Nazarene roots, there's kind of here's some of this Nazarene roots here. Okay, the word is netzer, the branch in Hebrew. Matthew 2.23 is going to kind of refer to this in kind of an oblique way. Somebody got that one and read it to us? Matthew 2.23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, by the way, Katie, you probably learned that verse in Bible school. <laughs> uh, most Nazarene folks learn this one early. Literally, what the what what uh, what Matthew is connecting here—it's interesting. Matthew basically says that Jesus was from Netzerville. Okay, catch it. He was from Netzerville. He was from Branchville. He's saying. Now that helps me make the connection a little better. Matthew wants to be sure. He's constantly trying to help me make the connection between the Old Testament and the New. Certainly the prophecies about Jesus and, and their fulfillment in him. So it's kind of this idea. Uh, he begins with this picture of life emerging from uncompromising conditions or unpromising conditions. But he is not promising a successor to David. I, every time I've read this, I've thought, why didn't he say from, from uh, David a branch will come? A root. You know, he's called the root of the tribe of Jesse here. He's called, um, hear it again, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. By the way, I'm looking at my Bible. It doesn't capitalize branch either, but some of them do. Well, here's what you and I have to understand here. And I, I think we ought to get some comfort from this. That God is not promising. Isaiah is not uh, sharing the thought that there is going to be a successor to David that will come. But I think the people that read it thought so. Isaiah is not promising. God is not promising a successor to David. He's promising another David. A different David. Jesse was who? David's father. There's that connection. But the branch of David here, it's not just, there's just going to be, uh, you remember that Solomon did pretty well, okay? His son Rehoboam didn't do all so well, all right? So there's not going to be another one in that line, although he is in that line. It's not going to be just a successor to David, somebody who kind of comes back and makes things happen like David did. No, this is another David, another kind of David. I find great comfort in that. How about you? 270 years before, Isaiah writes, a, sold, a, a, a king rose to power who had been a shepherd boy. 740 years or so after Isaiah writes, another shepherd comes to the fore. Would you go with me to John 10? Go with me to John 10. Keep your finger in Isaiah 11. Go with me to John 10. We have just got to read verse 14 and 15. One of the most important chapters of the Bible. By the way, I, go, I read lots of leadership books and I went to the leadership summit and I try to do that about every year. But Jesus never called himself the good leader. He called himself the good shepherd. Listen to this. John 10, I'm going to start with verse 14. And I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 270 or so years before, Isaiah writes, Isaiah 11, a shepherd boy came to power who became a warring, conquering king. 740 years or so after Isaiah writes, a shepherd also becomes a king, but he calls, he continues to call himself a shepherd. And he says, the difference in my leadership is I will lay down my life for you. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just a successor to David. It's a different David. That's who the branch is. That's why in some of our Bibles, branch is capitalized. It's very important here. Now, it's going to go on. In verse 2, it's going to say that he will have a spirit, capital S. That means that the spirit inside him is the Holy Spirit. You can put that in those first blanks there. Now, you're, you've been in the Gospel of John. Stay there for just a second. And go to 334. John 334. Somebody read that when you get over there. Now, back in, I, hang on to that one, Steve, for just a minute, okay? Because I may have you run back at it for a second, all right? Go back to Isaiah 11. Here's where the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The word rest there in the original language means constantly dwelling. It's not that he, you know, that picture that we see of Jesus also in the Gospels, where the Spirit lights on him or rests on him like a dove, and then the dove goes away. Don't assume in that that the Spirit also left when the dove left. The Spirit was constantly, the Spirit of God was constantly dwelling with him. That was the difference in him. He and the Father were one as he and the Spirit were one. There's that teaching kind of implied of the Holy Trinity. So one of the things that you got to pick up here, Steve, if you wouldn't mind, read uh, John 3.34 one more time. There's a phrase here I don't want us to miss. If God can give us the Spirit, if Jesus can give us the Holy Spirit without limits, what does that mean? That mean he, means he has the unlimited Holy Spirit within him. That he has unlimited access to the Holy Spirit and he can give it out, dole it out. Now look at the qualities here in verse 2 that are listed. Look at your Bible. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He's going to constantly be with him. Wisdom, understanding, Counsel, strength. By the way, this kind of um, uh, uh, harkens back to 9.6 where he's called the Wonderful Counselor. You remember that? Counsel, strength, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. All those things are going to be part of having the Holy Spirit resting on him constantly. Now, verse 3, it's going to tell us what he came to do or what he's going to come to do. This I've got to remember, we're talking uh, future tense in Isaiah's language. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord, and he'll not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So the idea here is that he exists, he delights in pleasing the Father. He exists to please the Father. Now, back in the Gospel of John, let's go to 530. I should have told you to stay in John, shouldn't I? 
John 30. What does Jesus say his judgment will be like? Somebody read it. Okay, now, he exists to please the Father, and he talks here about his own kind of judgment. What'd you, what'd you pick up from that? I'm not going to do my will, but I'm going to do his will. Catch that? As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will. He's not talking about what he hears from people. One of the things I most love about Jesus is that he wasn't putting his finger in the air every day and saying, which way is the tide of public opinion blowing? I'll go that way. Never. Never. He lives or exists to please the Father. Now, look at verse 4, back in, back in uh, Isaiah 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now, the idea here is, is that this judgment that won't be guided by culture, but will be guided by God alone. By the way, don't you wish? Don't you just wish? The Lord, Isaiah is kind of setting us up for what we kind of hope for to happen someday. And he says here, I'm not going to be guided by the culture. I'm not going to be guided by the whim or the opinions of men and women. I'm going to be guided by the Father. It's going to please me to do the will of the Father. But then he begins to talk about what will guide him on this. He's going to be guided by the Lord, Father God alone. On behalf of whom? On behalf of the poor. Uh, what, what, I, what I want you to catch here is that what Jesus judges will always be on behalf of those who need justice the most. Now, you and I have got to kind of dial into that. It won't be those who kind of already got it together. Those who have already got some kind of uh, 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 something going their way. Jesus' judgment is always going to be on behalf of those who need it the most. Now look at the last part of verse 4. What's that talking about? It doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound congruent with the, the first part of verse 4. He's going to give justice to the poor. He's going to hear their case. Then what else does it say? He's going to slay the wicked. It literally says, watch out for his tongue. Don't you know that those who are most abusing those that Jesus was concerned about in his day felt the sting of his tongue. You brood of vipers. Remember? Remember that, that section where he talks about, uh, yeah, you tithe. You, I mean, you, you go to your, your herb garden, you take a tenth of the dill and you give it to God. But then you throw a widow woman out of her house. Don't you know they felt the sting of that? The sharp blade of that judgment? 
can I tell you something? Don't you love that about him? That he takes up the right case? I sure do. It talks about the branch, verse 5. The branch will be clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. And it talks about a belt or a sash that will be tied around his waist. What's talked about, what that's talking about, if you want to catch it, is the part of a garment that not only kept it kind of neat and in place, but the part of the garment that kind of guarded or was a covering over or a shelter over the insides. A banal expression would be the guts. Literally, what it's talking about is what the, the implication by extrapolation here is that it's talking about the motivations of the person will be guided by what? Faithfulness and righteousness. Aren't you glad, as I am, that the branch will be rightly motivated by the righteousness and faithfulness of God? Now, I want us to jump down a little bit more, okay? And we're going to go to verse 6 because the imagery is going to change just a little bit. Somebody go to verse 6 and read down through 9. It's a beautiful picture, although interesting picture. What in the world is this talking about? Now look at the picture I brought. Okay, This is by a, a, an American Quaker preacher by the name of Edward Hicks. Uh, he lived from uh, about 1780 to 1849. Okay, And if you look at, at Isaiah 11.6, he was captured by this portion of Scripture. He did 78 different paintings like this, of this section of Scripture. 78 different paintings. By the way, if you can find an original one, pick it up for five or ten bucks in a a yard sale, I'll give you twice your money for it, okay? (laughs) Now, look at the picture. What does it depict? This exact, in fact, it's got the Scripture kind of woven around it there, okay? It's got a little, probably a little boy with his arm around a lion, You see, another lion is laying at his feet with a lamb. Okay? There's just this imagery here of cattle with fierce beasts. And it says, a little child shall lead them. Now, Mr. Hicks, Reverend Hicks, was very interested in what this imagery meant. And he, he saw it, as you and I will see it, as being a future picture uh, Joe, you come from Wichita. Have you seen a picture like this? Have you seen this one or one? I mean, he did a bunch of them. So, and it's where? In the chapel at Friends University. In the chapel in Wichita, Friends University. This particular picture. Up there. Can you imagine what those things are worth uh, from 1820 or so, whenever he painted them? But. Um, uh, 
the all, almost all of them are called a kingdom of peace, uh, or, or some of them are called the righteous branch. And so here's this, here's this picture. Now, here's the picture that's depicted. Let's fill in some blanks here. The changes in nature here are interesting to me. They're, what they're described at is as being radical. What I want to tell you is only the creator can do this. If Ellie Schneider was drawing this picture today, he would draw a picture of a Republican sitting to visit with his arm around a Democrat. <laughs> By the way, I was listening to a preacher on a podcast coming back yesterday, and he was saying he's, he's not at all worried about the election. He's got it covered. He's invested in pantsuits and hair dye. He's got it covered. <laughs> Can you imagine what is the most, the least natural picture of peace? That's the picture in Isaiah 11. It's radical peace. And the idea is that in this imagery that you're watching, looking at on the screen, would you agree with me that only the one who created them could change their nature to accomplish this? Makes sense to me. Only the one who made a lion could make a lion lay down with a lamb. You got that? And as if to add an even more radical twist to it, who's leading the whole picture? A little child. Wow. Okay, now, as we read on, the lion in the picture becomes a herbivore. Do you catch that? By the way, good luck at spelling herbivore. I could spell it for you, but then I might get it wrong, and then, okay. A lion becomes a herbivore. What did it say about a lion? Lion will eat like a cow. Interesting. That doesn't happen in our world. Haven't seen any lions lately, but I hear they've got them at the zoo. And they don't eat hay, do they? That's what it's described here. Again, only the creator could, make, could bring about this radical, radical change. All right? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 bothers me. Do you know why it bothers me? I'm not a snake fan. I don't care if Dr. Fizard says, you know, that they're good snakes back in his green belt that eat, you know, things you don't want around. I don't care. It's a snake. You've told me that, right? And you, you've also told my wife that the spiders in your backyard eat mosquitoes and stuff. I don't she, care. He doesn't care. <laughs> I'm just telling you, doesn't care. I don't care if a snake eats another snake. I and I heard that there are some snakes that eat other snakes that are worse. I don't get that. So I definitely have a problem with verse 8. Listen to it. This is not right. <laughs> the nursing child. So how old? A year old. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. No, he won't. Get that kid away from the... Okay. <laughs> by the way, I followed a two-year-old for a week. And constantly we were saying, uh, get him away from that. Okay. Where's Silas was the, was the game. Yeah. 
The nursing cobra will play by the whole. Uh, the nursing child will play by the whole cobra, and the weaned child. So this is one just a little older. Will put his hand in the on the viper's den. So it's the idea. Uh, you've got a den of vipers. So it's, it's Jesus' imagery, by the way, for the Pharisees. But there's a bunch of snakes, and he puts his hand in it. And a viper here implies a poisonous snake. But they won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How in the world could this scenario ever come about? Well, I'm going to give you at least one thought about it. Go with me to John 14. The words are in red in my Bible. I bet they are in yours. John 14, 27. I've quoted this maybe a hundred times. Rhonda, read it. I don't give you what the world's going to give you. If you're counting on the world's peace, you're going to look behind the wrong door. This kind of peace is not the world's peace. Can I tell you, regardless of what side of the political, military debate you're on, this won't promise what the world can give us in terms of peace. I get it. I understand it. I, uh, I you know, I... I'm, I, I feel like I'm on the right side of that debate, but this is not talking about the world's peace. I don't know that we'll ever see that kind of peace. We won't see this kind of peace because this is not the world's peace. In verse 9, which I already read, God is indeed doing something new. He's doing something wonderful. What does it mean that he's doing something wonderful? It means when I look at it, but literally the word wonderful means your jaw drops. <gasps> look. Jarth? That's true. Boy, that's so good. You're right. Let's look at 70, 65, 17. Just one more verse, and then I want to wrap this up. For behold, 65, 17, I create new heavens and a new earth. By the way, evidently in this new one, I'll be playing with snakes, and Rhonda will allow a spider to crawl across her hand. Don't get it? Not going to happen here. Don't count on that happening here. Okay? But there, it probably will. 65, 17. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. All that pain you and I are in now, all the disappointments of this world, Rhonda won't even come to mind. <laughs> she will not know them. And you and I won't know them there. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful promise? 
Romans 8.22 and other couple of places where Paul is, te- Paul is teaching. He says, this creation, this planet we're living on, is just groaning. It doesn't work right anymore. But there, but there, he's doing something new. By the way, I've got to do this one more time. Since I had to be out the last couple of weeks and some of it was unpredicted, we got to do 2 Corinthians 5.17 one more time, okay? All right? We're going to do the reference and the reference at the end. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 5.17. I almost forgot. The story is told of two rural artists, two artists, I'm sorry, who were commissioned to paint a picture that conveyed the theme of peace. One painted a quiet rural scene featuring a beautiful country home in the center. Next to the home were the fields and crops, were fields with crops awaiting for harvest. Contented cows loitered under trees. The sun was setting in the distance with the skies tinted in just the right color. The other artist drew an entirely different picture. In his, a storm was raging. Trees swayed on the mountainside and in the valley below. Flashes of lightning punctuated the the dark and the gloomy sky. At first glance, the second painting seemed to depict the very opposite of a peaceful setting. But on a rock projecting from a cliff, protected by an overhang, a little bitty bird sat calmly on her nest. She remained at peace in the middle of the storm. God is in the process of recreating. One of these days, he's going to unravel this whole thing. One of these days, he's going to make it all right. And one of these, things, one of these days, he's going to make it all new. In a day to come, everything that's destructive and harmful and painful and sorrowful will be eliminated without exception. That's God's clear promise to us. Today, you know what we live in? The period that I want to call, and here's what goes in your final blank. You ready? Until then. We live an until then life. Jesus is going to say, the words are in red in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't lie to you about that. In this world you will have trouble. But don't be dismayed. I have overcome this world. Oh, I want to follow him. Do you? Don't you? There's no better plan. There's no better way. If I'm going to live a life of peace, it will be because I am walking right behind him, step by step by peaceful step. Doesn't mean all is going to go perfect in this life. It doesn't, and I won't won't mislead you in that way. He didn't. But it means... That he knows he's the only one, the creator, the one who's going to rework all this, the one who's going to unravel all the things that you and I don't like, all the things that upset us. He has the only path to peace. We continue to read with me in the book of Isaiah for the next two or three weeks, and we'll be in some more of this next week as we talk about this Lord God of sovereignty who is the King of peace. God bless you. I'll see you next week.